Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is a special live edition of Talking Politics. We're coming to you from the King's Place Politics Festival. It is Sunday afternoon. England have just beaten Panama 6-1. Last night, Germany in the 95th minute, I think, stayed in the World Cup. So Germany are still at the heart of the World Cup. We are going to be talking about whether Germany is still at the heart of European politics. And we're going to be focusing on the questions of populism and migration. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. So I've got uh, Helen Thompson with me and also Chris Bickerton. We're going to be taking questions from our audience. Uh, We're going to talk about anything that they want to talk about. But to start with, we want to try and make sense of the map of European politics today and the new divisions that are emerging all the time around the migration crisis. And this is a fast-moving story, particularly in Germany, and we're going to talk quite a lot about Germany. Angela Merkel is probably in more trouble than she has been at any point in her time as Chancellor in Germany. But what we've also seen in the past few weeks is a new set of divisions opening up in Europe and possibly a fundamental new axis between, to put it crudely, the places that are resisting migration and the places that are resisting the people who are resisting migration. And what this looks like, and Helen and Chris can tell me if this is the wrong way of configuring it, is a kind of grouping which goes something like Austria, Italy, the new Italian government, Malta is playing a part in this, Bavaria, not Germany, but Bavaria is a separate player in European politics, and then the countries of Eastern Europe, particularly Hungary and Poland, on one side. And then on the other side, well, it's not completely clear who's on the other side, but Spain is in the forefront and in the big fight over who was going to take shiploads of migrants. It's the Spanish who've said that they would. So you've got Spain, you've clearly got Angela Merkel somehow on the other side, and then potentially, potentially some of the other Northern European countries, but by no means all. So, Helen, is that, is that the new divide? And if that is the new divide, what is the thing that separates these two sets of players? I think it's actually pretty difficult to work out what the new divide is because this is one of them, and I think that lines up in pretty much the way that you've described, although I would say that the French and the Macron, who left out of it, are actually straddling both camps at the moment. If you look at what he did about deciding whether those boats could come to France, he was actually quite hardline about it. But the thing that's making it complicated is the fact that you've got another division that's happening in a way that hasn't happened before, and that's over Eurozone reform. And there, the states don't line up in the same way at all. There looks like that there's a growing axis that basically pits France and Merkel's version of Germany against a growing number of other states that are increasingly getting called the Hanseatic League, but actually involve now states that wouldn't previously come under that description. And Austria, interestingly, has joined that group in a way in which it hasn't hasn't before so I think you've got two fault lines that are running through and the thing that they've got in common is is they are against Merkel. I was thinking about this in the 
roughly two years that we've been doing this podcast, we've barely mentioned Austria. I think we've only discussed Austria when there was that first wave of anxiety about populism and the question about whether Austria would elect a far-right president. But suddenly, almost from nowhere, this young guy, Sebastian Kurz, if that's how you pronounce his surname, he has the Heart of Darkness surname, but he looks like someone from a boy band, um, has become a major player, not just in European politics, but in world politics. Austria is suddenly at the centre of European politics. I think we probably shouldn't overdo it. Um, but he's important for a number of different reasons. But I think the migration issue is complicated because two different things are going on. They've become bundled together in the last few months. One is the experience of different countries to the migration crisis itself. So everybody knows that was massively skewered towards Italy and Greece, countries that were on the direct receiving end of thousands and thousands of, of migrants crossing the, the Mediterranean. That created its own, if you like, crisis. Then the second level of the crisis is disagreement amongst countries within Europe about how to resolve the problem at the European level. And so the question is, do you have quotas? Do you have redistribution mechanisms which force migrants that arrive in one country to then eventually be scattered across the whole of Europe? So some idea of burden sharing. Now that's a whole different level of disagreement. And there's some sort of alignment between, for instance, Italy, which at the moment has a very hardline interior minister in the form of Matteo Salvini, who's saying this is over for Italy. We're not going to receive migrants in the same way that we have been. But he's also been very, very critical of attempts at the EU level to find some sort of solution. Now other countries like Hungary are beginning to pile in and say we don't want quotas, we don't want redistribution and there are some countries that are happy with migrants and others that just don't want them. And those are in some ways you know, slightly different things. So to go back to where is Austria in this then? Well I think that Austria it, under its new government looks like it's trying to lead resistance against Merkel and it is forming some alliances within German politics itself in order to do so. And as you were asking that question, it just occurred to me, perhaps we shouldn't really be surprised that Austria is playing the role that it is. Because if we look at this in historical terms, there was a time when Austria was a very important European country. And you might even say, if the European Union is, and this is very crude, I know, but some version of the Holy Roman Empire, that version of it in one place starts with France and Germany and becomes something that's dominated by Austria. And it's only because Austria is excluded from the creation of the German state that Austria looks like it doesn't matter. Whereas actually, in terms of its geographical position and in terms of its historical heritage, it's perhaps not surprising that it can exercise the influence in which it does. So what then are these new alliances with people in German politics? Because also we've got used to thinking when we've discussed this, Germany is Merkel, Germany is what Merkel decides... She's been the dominant figure in European politics probably for a decade. She's now weak because of an election, but she's also even weaker because the alliance between the CDU, her party, and the CSU, the Bavarian wing of her party, looks like it's fracturing. And the fracturing of that alliance, is that potentially a fracture line in German politics? I mean, is Bavaria now, in some sense, a separate political actor in this? I don't think it's so much... Bavaria in itself, I think it's more a question of the fact that the CSU, the Christian Social Union in Bavaria, represents beyond itself a certain faction within German politics. It can also be found in the CDU itself, not the Merkel part of the CDU. 
and can be found to some extent over some issues, and I stress here over some issues, with the Free Democrats. What we have to see is, is that Merkel was able to suppress opposition over a whole range of issues, not just going back to the, the migrant crisis in 2015, but going back to the way in which the Eurozone crisis was managed from the beginning, the fact that the European Central Bank has been transformed into something that, if the German electorate had understood back in 1990s what it was letting itself in for, I, I don't think there's any chance that Germany would have been accepting monetary union. There's a faction in, in German politics that was very upset and extremely angry with Merkel about the way in which Brexit came about and the fact that no concessions or meaningful concessions were offered to David Cameron. They see Brexit as a terrible thing from the German point of view because it leads to a different kind of European Union in terms of where the centre of gravity And they specifically lies. blame Merkel. They don't blame the British electorate, they blame Merkel. Now, I've heard, uh, yes, someone who's of some influence in, in that kind of faction very explicitly blame Merkel for Britain's exit from the European Union. Because she didn't offer Cameron anything? This person said that the reason why the Brexit had happened was because Merkel was far too absorbed with the migrant and refugee crisis, listening to the French government too much about Brexit in order to secure concessions about dealing with the, with the migrant and refugee crisis and let something happen that, from Germany's point of view, was disastrous. Now, I'm not suggesting that is necessarily a correct in, interpretation, but there is a faction within German politics that thinks in these terms about Merkel's handling of Brexit, and they're very critical of Merkel's handling of the Eurozone crisis and the fact that the European Central Bank has been turned into something radically different than ever envisaged under the Maastricht Treaty, and they're very unhappy about her handling of the migrant and refugee crisis. So one of the ways that this is often framed is populism, and the thought is that populism has won, in some sense, in Italy in the last election, and the Italians are driving this. In Austria, populists are part of this new government. Orban in Hungary is routinely described as a populist. The populists are meant to be in charge in Poland. But the CSU is not a populist party. In fact, the CSU more or less frames itself as being the party that's to the right of the CDU in order to keep the populists out. So is it wrong to see this, this pushback against Merkel over migration as simply a, you know, the resurgence of the thing that two years ago when we were talking about Austria or a year ago we thought the wave we didn't think but other people thought the wave might have broken is this about the resurgence of populism? So I think it's about the resurgence of nationalism maybe or a certain sort of critical attitude towards questions of immigration. Now people can be anti-immigration without being populist but if for so long there's been a general presumption within political discussions that's sort of favourable to immigration questions or hasn't really taken immigration as, a, as something that you can have a proper political debate about it, which has been the case in lots of different places across Europe in lots of different contexts, if it's a kind of no-go area politically, then if you start to argue about it, you start to you know, express sentiments about it, then you're chiming with people's sense that they've not been able to talk about this before. And so it has a kind of populist, insurrectionary element to it. Now, in some cases, it's because rules about what to do are set at the European level, and so countries haven't been able to set their own rules. In other cases, it's that big countries seem to have broken European rules freely, whereas small countries have been forced to follow the rules. So there's that element as well. So I think it's, it has a populist aspect to it, but the heart of it really is clashes about values, different ways of thinking about the kind of society that you want. And that's not necessarily populist at all. But it comes in an age where 
we've gotten so used to, to not being able to really talk about immigration as an open question, so it has this slightly populist quality. Uh, so Austria, for instance, the emergence of an anti-immigrant sentiment in Austria was aligned with a certain aspect of its populist politics because this was not seen as the thing to do in sort of Viennese society would be to have the attitudes that they associated with Jörg Haider. So it had this nationalist slash populist element to it. So the person who's often held up as where populism might be heading in Western Europe if it gets really bad is, is Viktor Orban in Hungary. He's the often the bogeyman in these accounts of where... You, where the dark side of European politics is. So he gave an amazing speech last week on the 16th of June in Budapest. We'll tweet the link to it. It's worth reading. It's quite scary. But it's also very compelling. And it was in honour, in memory and in honour of Helmut Kohl, the former German Chancellor, the man who reunified Germany. And it offers a kind of philosophical vision of what Europe is and should be. And the two things that stand out about it to me is it's all about Christianity. I mean, this is all about religion for Orban. And he praises Cole. He's going out of his way to praise Cole, one has to assume, as a way of getting back at Merkel. I mean, you don't give a speech in honour of Helmut Cole in the current climate of European politics without actually talking about Merkel. And the implication is that Helmut Cole was a good Christian German and a good Christian European. In fact, he's described as the leader of European Christian democracy, and therefore, by implication, Merkel isn't. And the other thing that he says is that Europe is now divided in two, between two kind of visions of what Europe is, and for Europe to work, it has to be able to accommodate both visions. And one of the visions is, broadly speaking, multicultural, liberal, pluralist, and tolerant. And he says, we're fine with that, by implication. You know, I'm, I'm the tolerant guy here. I can tolerate your toleration... But then the other bit is countries like Hungary that have decided that they don't want immigrants, they don't want migration, they want to defend Christian values against Islam, they have a particular vision of European history which they will defend as true, and the tolerant bits of Europe needs to tolerate them, and that Europe will only survive if it can include both. So two questions here, the small one and the big one, come on to the big one which is can it include both? But the more specific one is, if this is an attack on Merkel, do you think it's an effective one? I mean, do you think that having, so, having someone from Hungary basically accusing Angela Merkel of not being a real Christian has any actual resonance outside of Hungary? I mean, Orban has a good reason to attack Merkel. This goes back to the refugee crisis. When Merkel made her famous statement, which is that we can do this, you can, we can accept all of these refugees that want to come to, to Germany and she essentially sort of opened her doors. The immediate response from Orban was that you have broken one of the key rules of the EU. You've broken European law because European law says that you have to send refugees to the first point of entry within the EU and you've just said that a refugee can come into one country so the first point of entry can be one country and then they can go all the way to wherever they want to go. And the sort of underlying tone of his argument was, this is double standards. You know, the origins of the Schengen arrangement and the origins of asylum and refugee policy in Europe were designed specifically from the German perspective to avoid asylum seekers coming all the way to Germany and to send them to those peripheral states, a lot of them Eastern European states, which would be the first point of entry. Now you've decided for whatever reasons to change the rules and you've just done it unilaterally without any discussion. 
And so his animosity to Merkel probably no doubt predates that anyway, but he was very vocal in criticizing her then. Uh, and so I think in some ways, maybe he's sort of trying to pick up on this wider theme, which is that Merkel posits herself as this great European, that she basically does what she thinks is good for Germany at the expense of smaller countries like Hungary. And he also makes this really amazing, strong claim that basically Hungary was responsible for the reunification of Germany because, as he says, in 1989, we were the ones who effectively opened our borders. He says, we knocked out the first brick in the Berlin Wall. Hungarian-German relations are the key to Europe. And once again, he says, we are the ones who are taking a lead. I don't think it is a very effective attack on Merkel to go back to that question because Merkel doesn't really actually work as a symbol of the things that Orban is not keen on, not least, because you could argue that Merkel herself is a lot stronger defender of some notion of Christian values in politics, certainly than Macron is. I mean, after all, Merkel's not been in favour of gay marriage, which is one of the issues which Orban mentions in this, if I'm correct, I think she abstained in the vote back either 2009 or 2010, Merkel said pretty explicitly that multiculturalism had failed in Europe and that we had to recognise that Europe was essentially a Christian continent. I think that actually that decision that Merkel made in 2015 and some of the rhetoric that she attached to it is something of an outlier in terms of the ways in which Merkel actually has previously behaved in relation to these cultural, civilizational, religious questions or whatever we want, however we want to describe them. Macron, I think, is different. And in some sense, I saw this speech as a response in good part to Macron's Sorbonne speech, which I think was in September of 2017. After the election. In which he basically made a claim for what the idea that should legitimate Europe that were pretty French and came out of a concept of the Mediterranean being the civilizational centre of, of Europe. And, and, that's and were they secular? Yes, I think would be a pretty, yeah. I mean, it was an attempt, as I saw it, to kind of claim a combination of the legacy of, of Rome and the legacy of the French Revolution as being the basis of what the idea of Europe... Um, well, that's definitely be. not very Christian. Uh, is it possible that this is a Catholic thing? Is that one of the things that potentially connects this new alliance with Italy at its heart and Austria? You're both looking very nervous about getting into this. We were talking about this earlier, and it's obviously not an easy subject to think about. But I certainly think that there is something going on in relation to Catholicism in this. It's not, I think, a sufficient explanation. But if you look at the, the new Italian government, both of its two main protagonists, the leader of the League and the leader of the Five Star Movement, are both deeply Catholic and are quite overt about their Catholicism. If you look at what was at the heart of the old Austrian monarchy, the Catholic Church is central to that. So the countries that seem to be mattering on the migrant issue are definitely Catholic countries. I think you might also argue that they're ones that either were subject to Ottoman rule or lived in the fear of Ottoman rule. And so this, this anti-Islam strain in this has deep historical roots. I think it most certainly doesn't in, in Hungary. I don't think it's possible to understand Hungary's history without understanding what the legacy of the Ottomans were. And there is a point, I think, at the end, isn't there, where Orban says something about the Germans don't understand what will happen to Germany under Islam. That Hungary has got this experience that 
he's saying that Germany just doesn't understand what it's letting itself in for. It is extraordinary, these speeches, Macron, this one, the extent to which we're probably not used to it in this country, European politicians take the whole sweep of European history and they assume that that has to be kind of what informs arguments in 2018 about the EU. It's amazing. But I think the Orban, I mean, the speeches, you know, it's not that long, so it's well worth reading. It also does begin with a genuine joke. Quite a good joke. Um, Do you want to hear it? You're now not going to laugh. Where he says, I've agreed on a division of labour with Zoltan Balog. I don't know who that is. I will speak frankly with no holes barred. Well, afterwards, he will apologise to the audience for this. Okay, I think you probably had to be there. Um, I think he's. I think he's doing something reasonably simple, which is that he's saying the European Union will only survive if it can accommodate the diversity of its member states. And he defines the diversity very much in value terms. Um, attitudes towards migration, religious questions. And he says very clearly, I don't you know, begrudge another country from being multicultural and whatever, but I don't want to be forced to do that because I want to be able to pursue the route that I think is the Hungarian route. And he makes a very sort of clear remark. He says there's nothing in the European treaties that should force or should in the future force Hungary to accept more immigrants than it would wish. We have to be able to be the kind of country that we want to be. Um, And so he's sort of throwing down the gauntlets. Now, the context for this is a pretty obvious one, which is that the Hungarian government, along with the Polish government, are fighting this long-standing battle with the European Commission about whether measures should be taken against them, and at the moment the focus is is particularly on Poland, uh, for violating the rule of law and undermining democracy in, in Hungary. And the Polish government has done this very clearly. I think Orban is doing the same. They're also saying that their decisions about how they organise their constitutional courts and how they deal with their judiciary and the media and things, the kind of laws that they introduce, is part of their right to live as a certain kind of society. And they shouldn't be forced by the Commission to observe a certain kind of democracy because they have their own one that they want to pursue. So I don't want to ask you, because not least uh, a lot could happen in a few days, there's a meeting happening today which will go some way towards deciding Merkel's fate. Um, I do want you to tell me how vulnerable you think she is. I'm going to do one football analogy here, because last night, I mean, as people who are interested in football will know, Germany lost their first match, and there is that old um, Gary Lineker joke, which goes roughly, what's the definition of football? It's a game of two halves, there are 11 players on each team, it lasts for 90 minutes, and at the end, Germany wins. And then it looked like, oh, it's not true anymore. The Germans are going to be knocked out of the World Cup. And then last night, in the 95th minute, it turned out it is still true. And sometimes European politics feels like this. You know, what is European politics? It's a game of whatever, it has whatever, and at the end, Germany wins. That is contemporary European politics. Should we be wary of writing off either Merkel or indeed German influence in determining the final outcome of this story? Is it premature to think that particularly the fracture between the CSU and the CDU could actually break what has effectively been a German stranglehold on European decision-making? So Merkel may patch things together for a while longer. She just cannot possibly go back to the influence that she had on the events of 2015-2016. You know, effectively in 2015-16... She stopped her finance minister kicking Greece out of the Eurozone. She made a bilateral deal with Erdogan to open up the possible path to Turkish membership, and she 
to all intents and purposes, I think, did sign and seal the likelihood of Brexit happening. And there's been a backlash against that. It wasn't manifest visibly in some sense till the German election, but it was there beforehand. And so the thing that was supposed to happen in terms of Eurozone reform, which was once the French and German elections were out of the way, that Eurozone reform could happen is now clearly not going to happen because there's not only resistance to that from this new Hanseatic League, to give it that name, but within significant resistance from within Germany itself. So she just can't go back to European politics as it was. But that doesn't mean that a different German government can't dominate the European Union, albeit, I would say, to different ends than the ones that Merkel has ended up pursuing. And I think the difficult question in all this is, is what does actually Merkel think about this herself? Because there could be a way of looking at it that says, OK, maybe she actually isn't so unhappy with the domestic resistance on the Eurozone reform, but she's got herself into a position where she needed to offer some symbolic concessions to Macron. So perhaps she can ally herself a bit closer to the centre of her party on that issue. The migrant issue is another question because she invested her personal credibility in that decision that she took in 2015. That wasn't the German government deciding for the European Union, that was Angela Merkel deciding for the European Union. And retreat from that, I think, is incredibly difficult. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So while Europe's been going through this convulsion about the politics of migration, so has the United States. The United States, in, in some ways, a much more dramatic, focused way because of what's been happening on the border, what's been happening in Texas, and what's been happening to children. And we know that when the issue of migration intersects with images of suffering, crying children, it changes the politics. And something has certainly happened in America that's brought it to the fore and forced that very, very, very rare thing, a Trump climb down. I mean, even a Trump climb down isn't really a climb down, because then when he's climbed down, he says he was right all along. But still, he clearly reversed himself on that question. And there's been a huge amount that's been written about the long-term possible impact, including changing attitudes of the American public of what they've seen in the past week of children separated from their parents, locked up in cages, crying. There are some very hard-to-look-at images. But it is also true that in Europe, we had the hardest-to-look-at image of all in 2015, which was of the three-year-old boy, Alan Kurdi, drowned on the beach and which we were told would change everything. That having seen that image, and it is almost now impossible to look at it still, um, the politics of migration would change. And it did change quite a lot, and certainly had a, for months, a, a sort of knock-on effect through European politics. Actually, even wider, it had a quite a big impact on Canadian politics. And the question of, like, are we really as heartless as we seem to be? Can we live with ourselves? Seemed to come to the fore. That was three years ago, and here we are now. Images of children have a short-term impact, but the underlying politics of migration in Europe is not in a more 
sympathetic, heartfelt place than it was three years ago. If anything, attitudes have hardened. Do you think that in the United States something similar is true, that this may change short-term political tactics and it may have some effect on Trump's fortunes in the midterms and so on, and it's complicated for the Republican Party. But in the long run, it's not images of children that change the politics of migration. I, mean, I think there's one big difference. I think in the United States, there's a sort of a certain awareness of living in one country. And so that crisis sort of hit home to everybody who considered themselves a US citizen. It's, um, it's, it's us who's doing that. That's right. Um, and that sense of collective responsibility or guilt, etc., was felt. In the European context, it's obviously the case in the UK, it's very much the case in places like France. In the case of some parts of northern Spain, vast parts of, sort of northern Europe, the direct experience of the migration crisis was just absent. If you're living in Greece or Italy, you had a, a very immediate sense of the crisis, but even in Italy it's very different if you're in Sicily or if you're in northern Italy. And um, is it partly therefore that people said it's actually not us doing this? Well, and also the, the way the deals were done. I mean, the, what Merkel did on the refugee crisis was to broker a deal with Turkey. And the way the deal was done was that the definition of success for that deal was no new arrivals. And it was very successful. It brought down the rate of arrivals massively. Now, what it obviously did was it just pushed the question further out. These people didn't disappear. They just weren't in our sort of minds anymore. So out of sight, out of mind has been a very successful European approach wasn't working in the, in, in the US. There was that immediacy, which was never the case in Europe. I'm not even sure it's that much of a short-term problem for Trump. One thing that you can see very clearly in the American political debate about it, perhaps a bit less clearly in, in the European one, though I think there's undertones to this in terms of Merkel's decision, is, is that most voters do not want to see horrible images of children suffering. But most voters also want to see borders enforced. They want humane borders. Now, whether that's possible is a whole other question, but that is the relatively large majority position of Western electorates about these issues. And they react, many voters react, not only to what Trump does, but they react to the ways in which Trump is denounced by the Democrats in the United States and what they hear of politicians on the Democrat side who sound like they're increasingly in favour of no borders. So there is no middle ground and that is where I think most of the voters are and the reaction to the politicians who sound like they want open borders can be just as visceral and just as electrically potent perhaps more so than the reaction to children suffering. And just to be clear about this, is it possible when I was describing this new alliance that includes Kurtz in Austria and potentially the, the CSU in Bavaria, is Trump connected to that in any way? I mean, do these, I mean, Kurtz is offering to broker the Putin-Trump summit. Some of these polit European politicians, not the main ones, but actually some of these we thought of lesser players, seem to have pretty good connections to the Trump camp. They do, and I think Trump has been deliberately saying things. There was one tweet in which he said something about migration to Germany. There were the remarks that were made by the American ambassador in Germany, which seemed to encourage a, a new government in Germany that would include the AFD. I think there is quite a bit of connection between various people who are close to Trump and the politicians who have been most vocal on this subject in Europe, yeah. 
but there's also a deeper affinity, I think, which is that if you think about some of the the ideas of Steve Bannon or some of the things that Trump have been saying as a it sounds a bit grandiose, but as an ideology, then the idea that this is something new makes no sense. I mean, European politics has been experiencing the rise of radical far-right parties over the last 30 years or so, with differing rates of electoral success, but it's been a main sort of mainstay of European politics. Now, these parties have been gaining, you know, 10%, 15% of the vote share for quite a long time, and now all of a sudden they've transformed themselves into parties that are sometimes even governing. So there's been a shift. But these ideas have been knocking around for a long time. And so I think the, the resources that Trump is deploying are just of things that we've been talking about and thinking about. So he's definitely delving into into European recent history. So I want to ask you one last question. It's a big question, but I want a short answer. But I think it's important to discuss this because this is part of the backdrop to all of this, which is the question, is this really, and it's often said, particularly by liberals, that all of this politics is a function of economic distress? Anatole Kaletsky, who's one of the leading voices against Brexit, among other things, in this country, wrote an article this week in which he said, populism isn't really populism, it's nationalism, it's economic nationalism. And economic nationalism always loses because of the fundamental laws of market economics. Though we should be very concerned about it and its short-term consequences, we shouldn't think that this could possibly win. Because in the long run, the economics will trump the politics. And I'm saying that because I suspect you're both pretty sceptical, but I would like to hear why very briefly. I just don't think there's any historical reason to think that in the end that the economics trumps the politics. I mean, do you think, for instance, that European growth, real European economic growth, of the kind that seemed to be getting going and now maybe stalling again, could make some of this go away? If Europe was booming... It's a big if. It's also true, it should be said, that America is booming and it's not gone away there. Two reasons why I would say no to the sort of that argument. Um, one is that it's historically inaccurate, which is that the way countries have developed in the past is that they've often sheltered themselves from the vagaries of a more global market through pretty high tariff walls to invest in their own industries and then have exposed them to global competition only once they already exist. That's certainly the history of German sort of industrial development. So it's not true that, you know, that economic nationalism simply just doesn't work because the sort of the pragmatics of the global economy always kick in. The other reason why I think it doesn't work is that I don't think it's the way we think about politics anymore. Politics is not just about the economic bottom line. It's also about values. And it's increasingly, I think, about values. If we don't have the language of left versus right, which was kind of socialism versus capitalism, we have the language of clashes of values, which is what we've been talking about for the last half an hour, then there is no other sort of reality to turn to when the values thing doesn't work. That is the way politics is working. And Orban is a really good example of that. The values clash is beginning to fundamentally reshape the European Union, which was originally just an, a trading arrangement. It should be said that Orban also says in his speech, what you have to remember is we are also an economic success story in his terms, he thinks. And he's almost saying, don't think this is about our economic distress. This is us telling you what we think when we also think we're doing pretty well economically. But he also says we're not Germany, we're just a small country with a small But population. on that, I mean, Hungary has been doing quite well economically under, under Orban, so the idea that it doesn't economically pay, I think, is, is problematic. But I think the other problem with the Kaletsky view of the world is, is that he, he doesn't engage with the fact that a version of nationalism, the idea of nationhood, is hardwired into democratic 
politics. It provides the answer to who the people are in democracies. And we had a politics, particularly from the 1990s, that denied that under the language of universalism, but it didn't go away. That is still the way in which democratic politics worked. It said these people are citizens of this state and these other people are citizens of a different state. So we had a divorce between the way in which politics actually worked about the answer to who the people was and the way in which politicians, many politicians anyway, talked about that. And it seems to me that part of what's been happening over the last five years is the politicians having to deal with the fact that the electorate still actually thought more like the ways in which democratic politics does work than the ways in which they thought that it did work. Okay, that's probably a good point to get ask people to tell us that we're wrong or tell Helen and Chris that they're wrong. Just a question about Spain. You didn't touch on that much and there's just been a change of leadership there. They obviously took a different attitude towards migrants taking in um, some people from the boat rejected by Italy. Just be interested to get your views on whether that's meaningful. Obviously, on, on that last point, their economy is just doing a little bit better than it was. I, I'm not an expert on Spanish politics, but it'd be interesting to get your views on that. Yeah, Spain's an interesting case. Um, I mean, in some ways, they're the sort of the good European, and they've sort of played up their willingness to do things in the right way and play by the rules. And that's been sort of the discourse of different Spanish governments of left and right for some time. I think, you know, a new sort of uh, person comes in, Sanchez, he's not going to rock the boat straight away. Um, I think he sees an opportunity, and this brings us a little bit to the discussion of, of Emmanuel Macron. I mean, he sees an opportunity for a more centrist, a more sort of liberal form of politics, much softer or more sort of open to, to immigration. He also saw, I think, an opportunity to distance himself from Salvini, to kind of really draw the line between this sort of right-wing figure in, in Italy. And so, in my view, it was a good PR opportunity. Does it translate into anything deeper? Well, I'm a bit sceptical because Spain has, you know, it's not quite the same as Italy, but Spain has also been on the receiving end of a lot of migration. And the issue about illegal migrants in Spain has similar echoes with the way it's discussed in Italy. There's not quite the same backlash and it's not being politicised so much. But in some ways, Spain is exposed to similar problems. The big difference, and I think this is really important is that Spain has emerged out of the crisis in a way that makes it much more optimistic about the future. And very recently, Spain overtook, for the first time that I know, Italy in terms of sort of economic statistics, in terms of GDP per capita. And that's a big change. So Spain is sort of moving ahead, which may have given the Spanish government a sense of there being a bit more room for manoeuvre, whereas in Italy, this, this issue has really come to a head. I think the other thing we should bear in mind is, is that the old Spanish government received a lot of protection in terms of Eurozone rules from the German government, particularly from the former German finance minister Wolfgang Schorbel, who basically told the commission not to fine Spain for breaking the rules. And that there was some ideological affinity between Schorbel and Rajoy's government. Obviously, Sanchez is not in that position they can't expect to receive this new government as lenient treatment uh, in regard to the Eurozone rules as its predecessors. So I think there was some incentive to be supportive to what Merkel wants over the migrant issue as well. And I think that it would be interesting to see whether Spanish politics could withstand the kinds of pressures about migration that Italy's politics has had for the last few years. And Sanchez, I think, might be of a different opinion when he's tried what the domestic consequences of this are. 
Should also say this is the week that Greece finally emerged from its bailout regime. Does that make any difference to anything? Well, basically, the terms of what has been agreed in terms of a little bit of debt restructuring pushes out things back to 2060 in terms of any escape. Yeah. <laughs> also, a lot for 2030 as well. So nothing that that's purely symbolic. It's substantively. I think if you're if you're born today in Greece, or if you're sort of 10 years old or 20 years old in Greece, you're just seeing that something really hard is coming down the line. Um, if that debt is ever going to be repaid, pushing stuff just further down. I mean, the restructuring, as I said, all it did was it pushed repayments, uh, sort of paying back the debt much further down the line, but not that far. I mean, we have. I mean, maybe the sort of maybe there was more for 26. But I saw a lot of stuff. A lot of the tranches of debt would then be pushed back to 2030. That's not that far away if you're extremely young. So the burden, the debt burden on a state, which is really what pushes down its economic development, has definitely not been lifted for for Greece. And economic growth is not going to... I mean, that's always the hope, right? You push it far enough down the track because by the time you get there, you will have basically grown your way out of the problem. No? Greece? There isn't any evidence that a state that has the volume of debt that Greece has can grow its way out of the problem. Um, I wanted to, I guess, probably direct this to Helen, given the previous uh, discussions you've had on the podcast particularly following last week in the G7, something I've been looking at has been if, given we're sort of questioning the rules-based global order, is the dollar as a reserve currency something that might come under threat? And if that is the case, what sort of landscape could we, could we see that playing out and in what time frame? Thank you. The interesting thing that's happened in regard to the dollar over the last 10 years, so basically since 2008, is there have been a set of developments focused on China, but not exclusively, that you would think would weaken the dollar's position as the reserve currency in the, in the long term. And that is that China and others want to escape having to pay for commodities, particularly oil, in dollars and are trying to set up alternative arrangements, in, including in, in China's case, a new yuan for gold contract for purchasing future oil. At the same time, there's been, an, something else has become clear, I wouldn't say it's a development as such, but goes in completely the opposite direction, and that is that the dollar's become more important or more powerful as the world's reserve currency than ever before, because the Federal Reserve Board has had to act as a global lender of last resort of dollars to states and indeed to the banks of various European countries. And it is proven pretty easy for the United States to come up with sanctions that shut out foreign companies out of the American banking system. That is how sanctions against Russia have worked. That's how sanctions against Iran worked in procuring the Iran nuclear deal. That is why Trump is getting his way with ending the Iran nuclear deal in terms of European companies in Iran. In the short to medium term, I'm reasonably convinced anyway that the financial monetary side of this is a much stronger force than the energy side of it. But how 30 years down the road that works out, that may be another question because the more that the Americans use access to dollars and access to their 
banking system as an instrument of hard power via sanctions, the more resistance will be put up to it and find it efforts by states, which are already there, you can see it in Russia in particular, of finding an alternative international payment system. And how much of this depends on the fate of the euro? The possibility that the euro could emerge as a serious rival to the dollar part of this, and, and the increasing unlikelihood of that part of what makes the dollar seem so impregnable? I think it has less to do with it than actually China's position in this, because it's really China's economic return that has changed these dynamics. I think it was hoped by some in Europe in the 90s that Europe can act as a, a potential reserve currency. But why would anybody elsewhere in the world bet upon the euro when it's not even clear it can hold its membership together over the next 10 years? I mean, it's just... China's got problems, significant problems, turning the yuan into an internationally convertible currency. That's not the euro's problems. The eurozone's problem is, is that it's not clear that it's sustainable as a currency union. I'd be really interested in how the three of you conceive of this term, populism. You know, it's something that we all talk about and perhaps mean slightly different things about, and it takes on these resonances. I'm particularly interested in what you think it's sort of defined against. And if you, if you think of, perhaps naively as I do, the purpose of democratic government being the kind of messy compromise of what's good for the collective in some sense, is populism just what you described, i.e., people that we don't agree with or is there something more here and what are you meaning when you're talking about it in this context? There is a version of this that says that of course in democracy people that we don't like and don't agree with are going to win elections and to suddenly scream this isn't right is absurd. On the other hand there is something about democratic politics which is based on ideas of compromise, certainly representative democratic politics and there are some very uncompromising forms of politics out there at the moment. And they aren't just uncompromising in their rhetoric. They really do fundamentally push back against the idea that you can accept what's coming from the other side as legitimate or part of what people are willing to discuss in, in democratic decision-making. And I think there is a streak in this populism that has that brutally uncompromising quality to it. And actually, if you read this speech by Orban, Part of it is a very clever trick, to go back to something that Chris said earlier, where he's saying, you shouldn't assume that you liberals have the monopoly on tolerance. Don't just assume that the only way to be tolerant is to be kind of liberally, multiculturally tolerant. What about the tolerance that includes people like me and people like you? But there are also bits of that speech which are essentially saying that certain things and certain ideas will not be countenanced and that you really have to draw the line. And with some of the what we would think of as populist rhetoric in this, I don't think that's just people we don't like. I think it is something that, that is categorically different, potentially, from what we have assumed in previous decades was functioning democratic politics. I've got to the point where I don't like using the word populist except for describing some or referring to some self-proclaimed populist party like the American populists, historically, because even if there is a way of using it in a very precise way, then it's just become so abused as a term in recent years that I think it has descended into this word that is used by some people to, to describe people winning elections whom they don't want to. I mean, I agree with David that there is something that is 
pretty brutally uncompromising about the rhetoric that comes from some of the parties that get labelled populist. But I would also say there's something pretty brutally uncompromising about some of the rhetoric that comes from those who oppose such. I mean, even just the name the resistance to describe the opposition to President Trump effectively delegitimates his presidency. It seems to me that a central problem of our times in democratic politics is an absence in, from a number of different sources of any willingness to compromise. I mean, certainly in a conversation, if somebody brings out the P word, um, either they're describing somebody they don't like uh, in a very sort of shorthanded and slightly lazy way, or they're accusing their opponent of being populist, in which case they've kind of lost the argument because they're just throwing this kind of insult out there. Um, so for a long time, it was this sort of insulting word in politics which tended to tell you more about the person who was using it than about the object to which it was meant to refer. However, it's incontrovertible, I think, that over the last even just maybe over the last two or three years, it's become almost impossible to escape some sense of feeling that we live in a populist age. Now, whether it's the right word or not, we can quibble about whether this term is right or not, and I think it's probably wrong in many instances, that nevertheless captures something. And so the question is, what's the something to which it refers? And I think there is a feeling that we live in a sort of, certainly within Western societies, within political systems that are in some way broken, and they're broken in the sense that people generally feel that the politicians that govern them are not really representing them in an authentic way. They're self-serving, they're pursuing their own interests, they're cut off, they're out of touch. So there's some sort of gap that's opened up between people who are just ordinary voters and a political class. Now, the strictest definition of populism really is a kind of politics that's based on a sentiment of us versus the elite, them, the politicians. So we do, in that sense, live in a populist age where the assumption that your politicians are representing you and doing a good job and are acting in good faith and are people that you can have a close relationship to has at some point in the last recent period broken down in many places, generating this kind of uh, widespread discussion about populism. Just to say one more thing, I do think it's true that the people that tend to get called populists have a striking number of things in common, whether it's Modi or Erdogan or... Trump or the new Italian leadership and one of the features is that they do see the views of their opponents as a kind of deliberate conspiracy against them. There is a kind of conspiratorial conspiracist mindset. Now I, I agree with Helen that it's not confined to those people and it tends to feed on itself and now everyone thinks everyone's conspiring against everyone. But there is that kind of striking feature at least to the rhetoric which is when your opponents say something, you don't just question their motives, which in itself is not a great start, but you assume that they are part of some kind of plot, deliberate concealment plot against the things that you stand for. And that is really, really dangerous for democratic politics if you get stuck in that way of political argument. And we are kind of, not entirely, but to a large extent currently stuck in that way of political argument. It's not that just every side questions every other side's motive, but every side questions that whether anyone says anything against them or not, you've got to ask, where's the plot? I, you know, I don't think you should say that's what populism is, but that mindset is a big part of contemporary politics. It, this actually builds quite a lot off the last two questions, so I don't want to repeat myself. And it's really about single-issue pressure groups. 
Uh, my observation with a lot of the terms of this debate um, in terms of citizens is exactly what you were saying, Helen, that citizens want better borders, but they don't want inhumanity. My question is, you know, what advice would you give to A, citizens trying to navigate their own position on what a reasonable request to government looks like, as well as to politicians on how they can react to that complicated and often conflicting landscape? That's a difficult question. <laughs> advice to citizens is always a challenge. <laughs> You're citizens, we're citizens, you tell us. But, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that the most important thing that any of us can learn in articulating political positions is some humility. Recognising the difficulty of having coherent opinions. It's very easy to get het up and angry and reactive to this real constant barrage of politics that we've all lived with. I mean, sometimes I just wish we could all go back to spending less time thinking about politics. In fact, I quite often think that. I'm pretty sure I never spent anywhere near as much time thinking about politics or indeed having emotions about politics that I did. Even going back to 2015, it seems a, another world in this respect. So it seems to me we've got ourselves into quite a dangerous position in so many people spending so much time engaged with politics. And, and after all, that isn't the way that representative democracy was supposed to work. We're supposed to be vigilant citizens in terms of making sure that our liberties weren't being taken away from us by those with power. But it, we were all supposed to have representative government of choosing representatives to make decisions for us. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the representatives don't need humility as well. But I think in, in some sense that we all need to, to step back a bit from the, the brink because I think that this obsession with politics that we've got to is, is, is unhealthy. So I'm not, sure I, I mean, I'm not sure I share sort of that feeling. I think um, my sort of political sort of experience has been growing up in what I perceived as a very apolitical age where having conversations about politics was actually a slightly weird thing to, to do. And the separation between politics and people's everyday life was completely formal. And unless you were, certainly as a student, unless you were a kind of a political hack, um, most people were just not interested in politics. So the extent to which those boundaries have broken down and politics has become something that people think about a lot more and have opinions about, I think of as generally a positive development. The negative side is obviously that sometimes people are thinking about those things because they are worried about what's happening and they feel that things are going badly and so they're worried about bad things, which seems maybe not as good as not worrying about things because there's nothing to worry about. But I think we were always in a political age, it's just that the way we understood politics was that it was done by someone else. So I think the first thing is to sort of try and situate ourselves historically is that we are in an age where some simmering disagreements are beginning to come out and that that is, I think, broadly a positive thing for democratic politics. But I certainly think that it is true that the, the shift, and this is where I think Ellen is right, I mean, if I understood you, is that this is what we should be practicing in our own relations with everyone around us, as well as a rule that should apply to party politics, but in our interactions with people generally, is to accept the legitimacy of the opposition. 
party democracies rest on a key principle, which is if you lose an election, somebody else comes in, it is legitimate that they won and that they govern, and you're going to try again next time. Now, sometimes in sort of personal interactions where people talk about hot topics, sometimes you feel as if that principle doesn't really exist in political discussions. And you can't actually have a discussion if you don't accept the legitimacy of the other person's position. Not as an idiotic position, not as an expression of you know enormous ignorance, but simply as a legitimate position to, to argue with. That, I think, would be a great step forward if we had that. And I just want to say something purely anecdotal that picks up on what Helen said. My son has just spent the last year in China, in Nanjing, and came back a couple of weeks ago. I picked him up from the airport, was driving him back. From Heathrow, talking to him about what it had been like. Many aspects of it were very difficult. Some of it was quite frightening. As a glimpse of our technological future, aspects of Chinese society are absolutely terrifying, including the, the extent to which young people live almost entirely online. But he said one of the really nice things about it, having come from a country where he was a sixth former, which had been through Brexit and general election after general election, he said to spend nine months not having to think about politics was such a relief. So if China is the country where you don't have to think about politics, that's kind of weird. Do you think that's a good note on which to end? <laughs> if you haven't heard this podcast before, I hope you will. If you do listen to it, I hope you'll carry on listening. It's been great to uh, hear questions from people in the room. We've got a new feature on our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. If you go to the contact page, you can actually record questions for us. We will listen to them and we will answer them as best we can. So do please do that. And this is where I say, my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. And this is where I say, my name is David Runciman. Oh no, I remembered I meant to say something else. <laughs>